If you please turn with me in your Bibles back to, maybe you're still there, um, Psalm 103. Our text this morning is Psalm 103. This is not our normal place we would be this morning in Scripture. I've been going through a series in the book of Job, but this morning with the baptism, I thought it would be appropriate to, to preach from these verses, Psalm 103, verses 17 and 18. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker both had churches in London in the 19th century. And on one occasion, Parker commented on, quote, the poor condition, unquote, of children being admitted to, to uh, Spurgeon's orphanage. It was reported to Spurgeon, however, that Parker had criticized the orphanage itself, and Spurgeon blasted Parker the next week from the pulpit. The attack was printed in the newspapers and became the talk of the town, and people flocked to Parker's church the next Sunday to hear his rebuttal. I understand Dr. Spurgeon is not in his pulpit today, and this is the Sunday they used to take an offering for the orphanage. I suggest we take a love offering here instead. Crowd was delighted, and the ushers had to empty the collection plate three times. Later that week, there was a knock at Parker's study. It was Spurgeon. You know, Parker, you have practiced grace on me. You have given me not what I deserved. You have given me what I needed. When someone wrongs us, typically we are ready to lay out what our enemy deserves. We are eager to hate and to punish to make our enemies feel the pain of what they have done. Uh, the problem is that we are not by nature gracious people. We are not interested in being peacemakers, and we don't want to give our enemies what they need and what they want. We don't want to bless them. We just want them to suffer. And uh, we justify our hateful attitudes and actions by telling ourselves they deserve it. I'm only giving them what they have coming. Now imagine if God were like that with you and me. Just imagine for a moment if God decided to give all sinners, to give us what we deserve. Where would we be? What would life be like? What would our futures hold? We can't even really begin to imagine, not fully, the horror of what it would be like for God to give us what we are entitled to. Entitled to. The Bible teaches that our sin against God is such a debt that we cannot even begin to pay it. And as a result, what you and I deserve is nothing but the wrath and judgment of God now and for all eternity. We deserve to experience nothing but pain and suffering from the hand of a just God. And yet it's at that very moment that God's mercy and his covenant love come into play. And the glorious truth that's laid out here in Psalm 103 is that God does not give us what we, as his covenant people, deserve. Verse 10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. If the main theme of this psalm is God's mercy, why does Psalm 103 refer in so many different ways to our experience of judgment, it refers to our struggles living in a fallen world under the curse of God. 
why. Um, notice David speaks in verse 3 of your diseases, which speaks of all of the physical and spiritual dysfunction with which we struggle. Verse 6, he speaks of the oppressed. There's great injustice in this world, and every day we are wronged by someone, sometimes in very serious ways. In verses 8 and 9, we have reference to God's anger and his chiding with us because of our sin, which ultimately accounts for all of our misery. Verse 13 refers to his compassion toward us, towards us which um, implies we are in misery and need. Um, we need relief. And verses 14 through 16 are verses that deal with the frailty of our bodies and the brevity of our earthly lives, where it says we are dust, we are like grass, we are, our, our flourishing is like that of a flower that is here and gone in no time at all. So why all of this we might call negativity in a psalm of grace? Well, in part because God has ordained that you as his covenant people must experience something of the consequences of sin. Really, the curse that has come upon us in this world because of sin, though not at the level that you deserve, and not as punishment for your sin. Uh, this is because you and I wouldn't understand God's grace and mercy without knowing what his salvation delivers us from. We have to know something about sin's misery if we are to appreciate God's mercy toward us. This is exactly the psalmist's perspective in Psalm 103. David praises God because he understands that with all of the misery of this life, God doesn't deal with us according to our sins. God is worthy of praise because he does not leave us in an estate of sin and misery as we deserve, but brings us instead into an estate of salvation by grace uh, through his son Jesus Christ as we know as New Testament believers, David in the Old Testament looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and uh, put his faith in the Messiah to come. But for both Old and New Testament saints, both for those like David and for us, we praise God for not leaving us in sin and misery, but bringing us into an estate of salvation. This morning, I want to have us consider the, the promise of verses 17 and 18 and, and to consider how this, this promise is especially meaningful to us as fallen creatures whose lives are so brief. Notice verses 15 and 16, right in the immediate context. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But notice the contrast there. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. We want to consider the eternal, steadfast nature of God's love, first of all, this morning. That's our first point. And then we want to consider who are the recipients of this love. And third, the result of this love. So verse 17 speaks uh, here in the ESV of the steadfast love of the Lord, Lord in all caps. So this is a special name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. And uh, steadfast love is uh, the word I want to focus on this morning. I mentioned the word hesed is a Hebrew word that is here translated as steadfast love. The King James translates it as mercy. The New American Standard version of the Bible says loving kindness. The NIV simply has the word love. 
And uh, this is a Hebrew word here that refers to a practical love rooted in compassion by which the Lord uh, helps sinners in need. And so we can understand uh, the translation in particular, mercy, uh, as being uh, particularly relevant. And yet the word is about more than just simply mercy. This is God's covenant love. This is the special love that God has for his covenant people. This is that kind and gracious and compassionate attitude on God's part toward his elect that actually works to bring about their salvation. Connection between this love and our salvation is actually found here in our text. For what is it that God does for David and for me and you in in accord with his covenant love and accord with his mercy? Well, what is it especially that, uh, that you need, that you and I need that God provides? Well, verse 17 provides the answer by relating together God's steadfast love and righteousness. Verse 17 says that his steadfast love is on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. Do you realize this morning that your greatest need, the greatest gift of God's covenant love is righteousness? Righteousness. Righteousness is being without sin with respect to the standard of God's law. If you are righteous, you are not guilty of sin. You are a law keeper worthy of God's blessings. But the problem is that by nature, apart from Christ, none of us are righteous. Uh, we are law breakers. And this places us in a position of great need because without righteousness, all that we can expect to experience are God's judgments and his curses, his wrath. Our sin, our lack of righteousness explains why we experience so many troubles in life. It's because of our sin, it's because of God's curse that we live in a fallen world subject to decay and death. And it would be bad enough if all we had to experience was God's curse in this life, but our sin has an even worse consequence of making us worthy of the ultimate judgment, the ultimate judgment of being cast into hell. And with this in mind, it becomes evident then what an amazing act of love is here described in verse 17. God's love toward us is such that he is willing to spare us from judgment by giving us his righteousness. And his giving to us righteousness is what scripture in other places calls our justification. This is the gracious act of God imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. And by imputation, we mean that that God takes the righteousness that Christ his son earned for us and he puts that righteousness to our account so as to regard it as belonging to us as, as though it is our own. Jesus in his suffering and death on the cross voluntarily, consciously, deliberately took all of the punishment that our sins deserve. He also as the second Adam perfectly kept the law of God in our stead. What happens then in justification as God, through faith, imputes to you the righteousness of Christ is that God puts to your account the entire saving work of Christ, the obedience of Christ, the suffering of Christ on the cross, so that in the end, as a result, you are pardoned of all of your sins and are credited with perfectly keeping God's law. That's the righteousness that you and I desperately need and that our loving covenant God gives us as undeserving sinners. 
what is especially brought out in verse 17, is that this love is an eternal love. Notice that. It's from everlasting to everlasting. That means several things. First, from everlasting to everlasting takes us back in time. The covenant love of God goes way back into antiquity. Well, how far, we might ask. Well, the Bible teaches that the love of God for his people existed in the decree of God before time began. Ephesians 1.4 says that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. God's covenant relationship with you and me and all of his elect is not some afterthought. The love by which God draws a covenant people into his fellowship by giving us righteousness must not be viewed as what God decided to do only after Adam fell into sin, but rather God from eternity had it all planned that when Adam sinned, he would not judge and destroy all mankind, but that he would save some sinners by extending his mercy to them in and through Christ. And all for the purpose that God would be glorified as a God of covenant mercy. And second, from everlasting to everlasting, it not only takes us back in time, but it also takes us into the future. God's love for his people will not change. His love will not fail. Notice what that means for us. As, you have seen, as, as we have seen, the covenant love of God comes to manifestation in granting us righteousness. And so when God says his covenant love will continue, this means that the righteousness we have in Christ will never fail. It will never change. That status of being right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ is one that will never change. Through faith in Christ, God has pronounced you not guilty of any sin, of having met all of the law's requirements, and that verdict will stand. It will never be revoked. And that is not all. Our text makes it clear that the covenant love of God continues into the future in another sense as well. This is the point at which we consider what is said in our text about who are the recipients of this loving gift of righteousness. It says in verse 17, this amazing, beautiful thing, it says that God grants righteousness to children's children. So God is telling us that his gift of righteousness is not only for one generation. It's not just um, a generation in the past. It's not just the current generation of now. But God's covenant love is actively justifying sinners, giving justification generation after generation, year after year. Righteousness is not something that God just gives to people in the past God is generous in granting righteousness in all ages. Not only that, but we see here the glorious truth that God works his covenant love in the lines of godly families. Christ's righteousness is not just given to us, but to our children and even to our children's children. So we see that God's plan is to save families, which fits with the covenant promise made to Abraham In Genesis 17, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And Peter reiterates this covenant promise in the New Testament when he is preaching there in Acts 2, and he says that the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And we can only stand really in amazement 
that God would save any of us. But then he says that his righteousness will be given to our children's children because they also will be recipients of God's covenant love. And that is totally amazing. And this truth is what we celebrate even as we have brought Victoria. Um, her parents have brought her for baptism. Uh, it's what we celebrate as we think of the other covenant children represented here in this congregation and throughout the world who have been brought to God, been brought to Christ in baptism. In baptizing our children, we are laying claim to this promise of God to save not only us, but the generations to come. We rejoice in God's grace. We acknowledge that for God to gather his elect from our children is indeed one of the greatest ways that he doesn't give us what we deserve. Of course, we must reject the belief held by some that God is, in some sense, promising to save every child of believers. The Bible does not teach that. We have the example of Esau to prove that not all covenant children come to believe. Romans 9 says that not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So simply because a, a, a child is born into the covenant biologically doesn't mean that he is actually a true child of Abraham. The children of the promise, Scripture says, are counted as the offspring of Abraham. And for Abraham, the covenant continued in Isaac, did not continue in Ishmael. And so how do we know if then if our children are true children of the promise and children thus of Abraham in the, in the true spiritual sense? Well, our text answers this question by making clear that there's a most definite result that takes place in the lives of those upon whom God extends his covenant love and grants righteousness. Verse 17, first of all, refers to those who fear God. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Verse 18 refers to those who keep God's covenant and remember to do his commandments. A proper understanding of these verses requires me to explain that salvation and, and in being in actual covenant fellowship with God, these things are not conditional in the sense that these verses are not saying that God will love you and give you righteousness and all the blessings of his covenant promises only if you first do your part by fearing God and doing his commandments. No, that would make our salvation and our place in, in, in God's covenant dependent upon our works. Uh, we are to reject any notion that we merit God's favor by what we do. We must reject any portrayal of the covenant that has God making a promise to save his people that is ultimately dependent upon us and fulfilled only if we will do our part. This includes even repentance and faith. There are those who say that repentance and faith are works that we do, that God honors and respects and, and enable us to experience the blessings of, of, of salvation in Christ when we believe that the Bible says that these things, even repentance and faith are, faith are gifts of God, that they are worked in us by his grace. So then how are we to understand the emphasis in these verses on fearing God, keeping his covenant, remembering to do his commandments? How do these things that concern what we do relate to the covenant and to salvation? Well, the relationship is this, that fearing God, keeping his covenant, 
doing his commandments are all things that will be evident in your lives when God has put his covenant love upon you and in his grace has granted you repentance and faith so that you have laid hold of the righteousness of Christ. The truth is that those who are in covenant with God, not just in the external sense of being in the visible church, but truly in fellowship with God, not just legally and outwardly, are people who fear God, who keep his covenant, remember to do his commandments. And this is because when God saved you by granting you faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you could receive his righteousness, he did so in such a way that you knew that you know you are saved by grace. You know that you deserved death, and yet God reached down in love and gave you a place in his family and kingdom. And the point is that you can't be loved by God and receive this gift of righteousness by faith without being in awe of God, without being in awe of his grace and wanting to please him as your God, to please him as your Savior by keeping the covenant. So then what does this mean practically for you and me? It means that being with covenant, uh, in covenant with God is not just some kind of title to wear, but it involves a relationship with God where you love him and you want to please him with your obedience. When God draws you into his covenant, he draws you into his fellowship. And that is something that will profoundly affect your life. For what is the nature of your relationship with the Lord? What is the nature of the relationship with the Lord as we think of that relationship as a covenant relationship? Is it not about fellowship? It's about union. It's about friendship. It's about communion with God. And because the Christian life is this life of friendship and fellowship with God, you and I must nurture that relationship through worship and through prayer and through a study of his word each day, consciously responding to God's love and grace by loving him and doing what he commands. In a relationship, a true relationship, both parties are responding to one another. So we cannot say we're in covenant with God without trusting him, without loving him in response to his love toward us. And there must be this conscious goal um, as part of the covenant that you're going to obey him out of love, out of appreciation for his grace. In the context of our baptized children, there's instruction here that pertains how we are to raise our children in the church. We must make clear to our children the need that they are to respond to God's call on their lives. As members of the covenant community, they must hear of God's love in Christ and of God's promises to his people, and yet there must be this additional, uh, this, this additional step of making it clear to them of their personal need to respond to God in repentance and faith. The simple truth is there is no covenant fellowship with God if there is no relationship with him of trust and love. And so let us take to heart our need to train our children, as scripture says, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, or in the, we could also word it this way, the discipline and teaching of the Lord. At the same time, let us take up this responsibility in joy and expectation because our God is one of everlasting covenant love. And he promises to grant his righteousness, the righteousness of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to children's children. And the result is that in all generations, 
are people praising God for his Hesed love. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for your covenant that you chose to draw people into your fellowship, those who had cast you off in, in the fall into sin. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave all of us, uh, all sinners in this world, in a state of sin and misery, but you came and you're gathering your people. And we thank you that you're gathering them in particular from our children and, and their children's children that you are gathering your elect from families within your visible church. Father, we're thankful for this everlasting covenant love, this love that began back in, in your decree, even in eternity, before the creation of the world, a love that will continue to exist forever as your people will be with you experiencing this covenant fellowship, even for all eternity in heaven. Lord, uh, we pray that as covenant parents, those of us who have that responsibility of uh, raising our children uh, in a way that pleases you, Lord, we pray that we would remind them constantly of their need to keep your covenant, to do your commandments out of a relationship with you born of, of repentance and faith. Lord, we pray that we would make clear to them that it's not enough simply to belong to the church, but that they must seek you as their God, as their Savior, uh, seeking this righteousness that can only be found in the way of faith in Christ. So, Lord, we pray that we would constantly remind them that there is no place for trust in religious ceremonies. There's no trust um, to be uh, given to, our, to ourselves, to anything that we might do or not do, but we are to trust solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, Father, we pray that our children would find this uh, evidence of your, your hesed love in their lives as they fear you, as they keep your covenant, as they do your commandments out of love for you, out of appreciation for grace. Uh, Lord, we all need to be reminded of these things. We're thankful, uh, Lord, for this, this covenant love, this merciful love that does not give us what we deserve. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.